0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Lord willing, we will wrap up this chapter in which Paul has been discussing his ministry, specifically how he seeks to give up his rights for the good of others. Paul, if you will remember, has been going through great lengths to demonstrate not only that he has real rights, legitimate freedoms because of his position but also that he has sought to love others well by giving up those rights he has a right to be compensated for his work he has a right to bring along a believing spouse who should be factored into that compensation to go back to chapter 8 he has real freedom to eat meat that had been sacrificed in a pagan temple however he is willing to give up those rights he had not sought compensation, he had not eaten meat, and he had done so for the good of others. He has, to use his own words, enslaved himself to the consciences of weaker brothers and sisters around him in order that his behavior would in no way be in a stumbling block to the gospel. In fact, he says he would rather die than that the gospel be impeded or obscured. And then tonight in our text, Paul turns to use a different kind of ima- imagery. Paul, like a good preacher, uses different kinds of sermon illustrations, if you will. He uses illustrations and he uses analogies, and he uses them very well. His most famous ones, we might say, are the, use, the image of a farmer, the image of a soldier, and the image of an athlete. And it's the last one that we will see tonight, an athletic illustration. So let's look at our text 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 24. Hear the word of our Lord. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would make this text alive to us, that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would mold us and make us, that you would fashion us more and more into the image of the Son that You would conform us to His righteousness and holiness, and that You would build up our faith in so doing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We will work through our text this evening by looking at Paul's use of imagery, Paul's imperative, and Paul's intention. The imagery and imperative and his intention. Let's look at verse 24 and see the imagery that Paul uses to describe the Christian life. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Paul here is connecting with his Corinthian audience by using a bit of shared cultural knowledge as the base of his illustration for the Christian life. Corinth, as we've previously learned, is a very wealthy and very influential city. And part of that influence came from the athletic games that took place within the city. There were four major types of athletic competitions in that region that were regularly held. One was the Olympics, which we've all heard of. Another two were the Pythian Games and the Nemean Games. But of relevance to us are the Isthmian Games, which I'll call the Corinthian Games simply because it's easier to say. They were held on the Isthmus of Greece. And so these Corinthian Games were held every few years and they were significant in the city's culture. From a very young age, elementary school age, young boys and girls destined for the games would be put into rigorous training cycles. They would attend special schools. They would be taught by special tutors. They would be put under special diets. They were called to follow demanding exercise routines in order to one day, hopefully, have a shot at competing in the Corinthian games. And the goal was to produce a child that possessed a noble soul on the inside, and an excellent body on the out. They wanted a beautiful person inside and a beautiful figure of excellence and perfection on the outside. Boys were raised in this way to compete at the highest levels, and girls would train also, not necessarily to compete in the same ways, but in order that they would be fit mothers for future athletes, that they would be good stock for future competitors, we might say. And all of Paul's readers would be familiar with the impact of these games. They had seen the statues of the former champions. They had walked past the monuments on the way to the grocery store. They had read the inscriptions about the glorious victories of past winners. They knew about the money. They knew about the fame, the glory. but They also knew about the training, the self-discipline required to compete at the highest of levels. These athletes were just as committed to their craft as athletes today. Today, it's not uncommon for the premier talents to have special nutritionists on the payroll to help them with a proper diet, dedicated trainers to help them exercise in the most effective ways. And back in Corinth, you'd have the same. For example, a hopeful participant of the Corinthian Games had to take a vow, an oath before they competed, that they, would, that they had taken ten successive months to follow this rigorous regula- regulation of training. A regular guy off the street couldn't just jump into the competition. You were unqualified to even get in the starting blocks unless you had worked towards the goal with intentionality, with exemplary dedication and discipline. And so it doesn't take too much cleverness to see why Paul would use such an athletic metaphor in his sermon. Nobody stumbles into success in the Corinthian games. And so, too, nobody stumbles into faithfulness in the Christian race without effort, without discipline, without intentionality. That leads us to our next point. Look at the end of verse 24, and we see Paul's imperative. Paul's imperative to the Corinthians. He says, "...do you not know that in a race all the, racers, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it." Run in a manner that will win you the prize. That is the driving imperative of this whole passage. Run in a manner that will make you successful, that will get you the medal, that will earn you the ribbon. And to do that, you must have self-control. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Bums don't make it to the podium. The lazy man will never earn the prize. That's true in the Corinthian games, it's true in life in general, and it's true in the Christian life exertion is required if you are to succeed. And Paul is making the argument from the lesser to the greater. He points out that the athletes would do all of this straining and striving for a temporary prize. But Christians work for something better. They do it for a perishable wreath. This crown that they would be given to the victor was a little bit of woven garland made of laurel or pine. That's what they were fighting for. Something that was dying and disintegrating from the moment it was placed on the victor's head. That's what they wanted. And they were willing to strain and to strive and to toil for such a fleeting prize. And so the argument is, how much more should we as Christians strive for victory when we've been promised an eternal prize, an imperishable prize? We discussed this last week when we looked at verse 23, where Paul talks about being motivated by the goal of sharing in the blessings of the gospel. Those blessings we saw were the the things promised to every believer, the blessings of an inheritance kept for us in heaven, blessings which are imperishable. They won't fall apart. They aren't some dying set of twigs stitched together and placed on our head that will rot and be gone tomorrow. We're striving towards the goal of a permanent, glorious, benevolent reward that God is holding for us in heaven. If they will exercise discipline, if they will work and give blood, sweat, and tears for such a fleeting prize, how much more should we be willing to do the same? That's, that's the argument. A couple of quick notes before we move on to the specific instruction. I want us first to notice the discontinuity with Paul's illustration. Every sermon illustration breaks down at some point, but we need to note the particularly glorious way that Paul's illustration breaks down. The competitors in the Corinthian games would train and labor in order to win a prize, a prize, not prizes. There was only one victor, and necessarily so. There can only be one gold medalist. There can only be one Super Bowl champion. But unlike earthly competition, the Christian race is not one with a single winner. In fact, the more we strain and strive and labor in our Christian race, the more we see that we are actually encouraging and aiding and supporting others in their Christian race. Our goal isn't for us to win and others to lose. In fact, it's kind of the opposite of what Paul is arguing in this entire chapter. Paul strains and he strives in the Christian race so that more and more people would join him in their Christian race and that they would be successful in gaining their own prize. There is no competition between Christians in the race. There's no competitiveness. There's no rivalry among us. In fact, the New Testament makes very clear that that should be thrown out entirely. Our progress in the Christian race is is usually evidenced by how well we are aiding others in their Christian race. Have you ever thought about that? We could say it another way. One way we know how well we're doing in our own Christian race, our own marathon of the Christian life, is to see how we're doing at helping other people in their race. We could see our progress as a disciple of Christ by looking at our fruit in discipling others the fruit of helping others along in their race. And so the question for all of us is this, how am I doing at encouraging others in their Christian race? How am I doing at pointing others back to Jesus in spurring them on in their Christian journey? Are you a better racer? Are you a better discipler, a better Christian friend and mentor than you were a year ago, ten years ago? Am I praying for those that are struggling in their race? If not, then this may be an area where you need intentionality, where you need to exercise. To to use another illustration, we may need to shed a few spiritual pounds in order to run our race with greater effectiveness. But another thing we ought to mention before we move on to verse 26 is this. Some people take Paul's instruction in these verses to mean that Paul is talking about his own salvation. They conclude that Paul is talking about his own final salvation when he's talking about his race. And that Paul is here telling everybody that he is straining and striving and working in this life because he's afraid of losing the prize which is his salvation. I don't think Paul is saying that as if to think that if Paul doesn't end his race well, that Paul will lose his salvation. I don't think that's right for several reasons, but I'll mention just two. First, for me to tell someone that Paul was worried about losing his salvation would be akin to pastoral malpractice, I think. it would be throwing stumbling blocks in front of weaker souls who might not recover. And the logic is this. If Paul, if the mighty apostle, the one anointed by God Himself, commissioned by Jesus on the road to Damascus, if Paul was unable to know that he was saved, if he was unable to gain any assurance of his own salvation, then what hope do we have of ever gaining any assurance of our salvation? That's a valid question for those who interpret it the other way. But Secondly, I don't think this passage is talking about Paul losing his salvation because it doesn't fit with the rest of Paul's theology. We don't even have to leave this own letter to make that clear. If you want, you can flip back to chapter 1. I want to point out one thing. Paul makes it clear in chapter 1 about what he thinks about perseverance in the Christian life. Is me staying a Christian up to my running the race the best, or is it something that God helps me do? That's the question. Chapter 1, verse 4. Paul giving thanksgiving to God because of the Corinthians. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very clear. Christ will sustain you to the end. Christ will hold you guiltless in the day of the Lord. There's no doubt in Paul's mind. Believers will be sustained and upheld to the very end. That's clear in that passage. And take note here of what we're doing this is good Bible interpretation. There's a good lesson here. When we find ourselves puzzled by something that seems unclear, like chapter 9, is Paul talking about he's losing his salvation or not? Let's go to a clearer passage, like 1 Corinthians 1, and help us let us use that to help us interpret the less clear passage. That's biblical interpretation 101. So back to chapter 9. What then is this prize? if it's not Paul straining and running for his final salvation? Well, this prize is an inheritance. It's gospel blessings. That's what we mentioned last week, looking at verse 23 of chapter 9. It's the commendation of God, saying to those who have finished the race well, well done, my good and faithful servant. Paul knew that while we weren't held in God's grace by our own works, we will be held accountable for what we do with the grace shown to us. We will be commended for seeking to maximize God's grace for His glory in our own life. We can go back to chapter 3 to see another analogy. Paul says in chapter 3, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones and wood and hay and straw... Each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of the Lord, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." And so I'm saying that there's there's a way to run the race that earns a commendation from God. Well done. Your works have stood the test of the fire, and you will receive a reward. But there's also a way to wash up on the shores of heaven, like a shipwrecked sailor with singed trousers, so to speak. And we don't want to be that. We want to run towards our prize with zeal and intentionality, with effort and with self-discipline. So back in chapter 9, we've seen Paul's use of athletic imagery, and we've seen his imperative. Run the race that you may win the prize. Now let's move on and see Paul's intention. Verse 26, Paul says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Paul now moves to using himself as an example. He switches to the first person. Given the stakes of the game and the possibility of not ending the race well, Paul intends to make the best of his time and his energy. He says he doesn't run aimlessly. He doesn't just wander around with zeal but no direction. He isn't haphazard in his faith. He has a direction. He has a destination, a prize in mind the whole time. As I was thinking about this sermon, I tried to come up with another image that might capture this of zeal without direction. And the Lord brought to mind my recent tour of duty in the worship care hallway. Rebecca and I were given oversight over the three-year-old class, which, in God's good grace, was at max capacity that day. And so we took them all downstairs, we walked into the classroom, and they erupted in joyful, playful chaos. Truckloads of energy in a small, confined space. So we made the split-second decision to, let's go out to the playground. We turned them all out to the playground, and as they walked out the, the hallway doors that open up onto the playground... Squeals of joy erupted, and they raised their arms as they were running out onto the playground, scattering and streaming everywhere. They had no idea where they were going, why they were going that route, but they were full of zeal and joy, and they were just running amok. That's what can happen in the Christian life. We can steam ahead with varying levels of zeal, but with no clear direction or goal. I counsel people often who are kind of wandering aimlessly in their Christian life. They just kind of float along. They're kind of like driftwood on the current, content in their drifting, having no clear goals and applying no real effort. As long as they're not disturbed too much by some trial or some kind of discomfort, if they were honest, they would be happy to coast the rest of their Christian life. And when they are forced to grow by God's good kindness to them through some trial, they can be stunned by the experience. They become spiritually flabby. Their their soul is out of shape. They find it difficult to continue in the race. They're like a middle-aged man who decides to go straight from the couch to run a full marathon. A little way into the endeavor and he's ready to pass out. Many Christians in trial are like that. They get a little ways into some trial and they see their faith is about to pass out. They're spiritually winded. They feel like the race is going to kill them. And that can be the result of aimless running in the Christian life. That can be the result of being unintentional with our faith, with our spirituality, undisciplined in growing in prayer, Bible intake, fasting perseverance. No direction, no goals, no growth. It's like the old adage, if you don't set any goals, you will be sure that you'll never meet them. Paul says in the next part of the verse, he doesn't just use the imagery of running a race, he also switches to boxing. He says, I do not box as one beating the air. It doesn't do you any good just to swing at the opponent without landing any blows. You don't get to be a champion boxer like Muhammad Ali or George Foreman without actually knocking blows into the opponent. That's clear, Paul. Got it? So what do you do instead? Who is it that you're seeking to box and knock out? Well, here's where it gets interesting. Verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Unlike the gladiators and the competitors in the Corinthian games who knew their opponent could clearly see the enemy in front of them, Paul says that he is the enemy, that his body, he wasn't concerned with something outside of him, something external to him was going to undermine his ministry. He knew that the greatest threats to him reaching his goal of gospel advance and gospel blessing was within him his own passions, his own appetites, not used in a way that honors the Lord. And here we see the truth of remaining sin. The fact that even Christians that have been forgiven and born again still wrestle with remaining sin within themselves. It wasn't that Paul was someone who hated his own body as if his physical flesh was somehow evil. God created our physical flesh and declared it to be good. The problem was the remaining sinfulness within him that could tempt him to use his body in unholy and unhelpful ways. We still have the old man fighting against our desires for holiness, and so we still must battle. And Paul battled. The word discipline there is the word for knocking somebody and giving them a black eye. That's what Paul was doing. He was being strategic Everybody knew that the Corinthian Games participants were expected to exercise discipline with their bodies if they were going to win. Victory requires sacrifice, and in order to help ensure victory, they would willingly abstain. These competitors were famous for their discipline in the areas of food and sensuality. The two areas that dominate the majority of Paul's arguments in this part of the letter. Chapters 5 through 7 deal with sexuality. Chapters 8 through 10 deal with food and idols, idolatry. Indeed, we see in the very next chapter, Paul is going to warn the Corinthians to not be like the people of Israel who were given over to their evil cravings and they were judged largely because of their sexual immorality and their idolatry. The Corinthians need not adopt every aspect of Paul's lifestyle. But they do need to take much more seriously the potential for failing to reach the prize because they were uncritically following their appetites for food and for sex. And it's likewise with these two appetites of the body that many of us need to exert ourselves, to rein the passions in, to get control over the appetites. Ask yourself this. Am I showing the same kind of discipline modeled by Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house? Or am I toying with sexual temptation? Watching things that I shouldn't be watching? Looking at things that I shouldn't be looking at? Letting my mind linger on those thoughts which don't promote contentment in my marriage and holiness in my soul? Or am I showing the same kind of bodily discipline that Daniel showed with regard to food at the table of Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel willingly showed restraint over his physical appetite for food because doing so demonstrated the sufficiency of God in all things. Not to get too far ahead, but whether we eat or we drink, and in whatever we do, especially in the area of diet and sexuality, we are to glorify God and flee sexual immorality and idolatry. We need to train our bodies, rein in our passions, understand how our appetites can lead us astray, and we need to approach our Christian life with the mindset of a competitive athlete who was willing to sacrifice greatly if it aided him in reaching the prize. The older word for self-control was temperance. Now it says self-control in most of our translations, but temperance is a little bit bigger. Self-control is just having the ability to do something under your own control, not under the force of somebody else. Temperance was more like restraining yourself, keeping your appetites and your passions in, so that you can be free and nimble to whatever comes at you next. It's it's almost like girding up the loins of your mind, that language from later in the New Testament. You're girding up yourself so that you are ready and agile for anything that comes at you next. That's what to be temperate means. And that's what we should pursue. Because what's the alternative? Look at verse 27. Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is concerned to do these things because he doesn't want to be a hypocrite. He doesn't want to disqualify himself because he's unwilling to practice what he preaches. Paul wasn't a man, or Paul was a man who didn't want to be known for how he started in the Christian life. He wanted to be a man faithful to the end. It doesn't matter how well a runner gets off the starting blocks... Or how quickly he makes it into turn three what matters is the end what matters is how you finish and so is that is that us is that you are you concerned to strain forward and lean in to finish well have you been intentional and growing in your faith or have you gotten slack started jogging maybe even walking rather than running the race Or maybe you haven't even begun the race. If you've not trusted in Christ by faith, then know that you're not even in the starting blocks of this race. In fact, Scripture says, you're not on the track, you're in the grave. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You may think that you're alive. You may say, well, I'm doing okay. But God would have you know that every moment that you spend not worshiping Him, not honoring Him, not submitting to Him and His Word, is another moment that will count towards your eternal judgment in hell. God has created each and every one of us so that we would be in fellowship with Him. And when we refuse to do that, when we refuse to worship God through Jesus Christ, we're rejecting the offer of God and earning for us a prize. But not a prize of garland, but a prize that's imperishable of eternal misery and torture in hell. That's what awaits the unconverted. But it doesn't have to be that way. God has offered to all mankind the eternal prize of the gospel, and He has done so at the cost of His own Son's life. That's the good news of the Bible, the good news of Scripture that I offer to you tonight. God's Word makes clear that anyone who would believe in Jesus who would trust in Him as the only way to forgiveness for sin, all that would do that will be granted entrance into paradise, adoption into God's household, and eternal fellowship with God in the new heavens and new earth. And that offer stands for you. And so if you haven't yet believed, won't you? You cannot run this race on your own. In fact, you can't even start the race on your own. Only through faith in Jesus can it be done for you. And that's your only hope. Trust in this Jesus and enter the race of joy with us. And for the believers in this room, I have stressed the law a lot tonight. Because that's what Paul does in this text. We've all been pressed, I hope, to consider our progress in the Christian life. To see if we're being intentional, if we're exerting ourselves, if we're growing more spiritually flabby or more spiritually sturdy. And some of us need to hear that message because we've grown lax. But others of you might be striving and straining so much that you are exhausted. You've been running the race in your own strength and not in the power of the Spirit, and so you're burnt out. You've grown weary of doing good. And so whatever your spiritual condition, I want to close by encouraging you with the gospel. And what is that good news for believers? It is this. Even though Adam failed to finish his race well, and even though all of us fail to finish our races in our own strength, Christ finished his race well. Christ strained and he strove perfectly for his prize. And because he finished well, he has been given the prize that he sought. And what is that prize? It wasn't earthly glory and fame. It wasn't the accolades of men. Christ sought the prize of His beloved bride. His prize was you. You are the one that He raced for. He loved His people with such a love that He was willing to discipline His body even unto death in order to attain His prize. Christ ran His race unto death because He loved you. Because He wanted to win you back from sin and death. And praise be to God that Christ has finished His race. He has earned His prize. Christ is the victor. He is the champion. He was successful in His mission. And because that's the case, we can have confidence in our race. Christ has won the prize, and that frees us to joyfully pursue ours. So when you're worn out and you're tired in this life, remember that God doesn't love you because you're such a great runner. God hasn't saved you because you're the best Christian. He saved you because He loves you. And in Christ, you are enough. No more performance is needed. And if you find yourself coasting, if you're growing a little a little spiritually flabby, then remember the Christ who has saved you. And remember from what you have been saved. Remember the great cost that He went, to, went through in order to buy you back from sin. And if that be the case, then how could you continue to go back to sin? Run the race well. Discipline your body so as to win the prize. Remember the words of Paul in Romans 6. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Does that sound like legalism? It's not. The next verse. For sin will have no more dominion over you since you're not under law, but you're under grace. For all of us, whether we are wearied by the race or we're just getting started in the race, Or we've drifted a little bit and we need to get back up to speed in our race. We all need to remember the gospel. We need to remember what's pictured at the Lord's table. It's at Jesus' table we see pictured for us the race of Christ. We see what was at the finishing line for Jesus. Death on a cross. But we also have at the table the promises of the gospel. He promises to spiritually feed us. By reflecting upon and partaking of His broken body and blood. He promises communion with us as we dine together with Him. He offers us spiritual refreshment to all of those who are wearied by the race. He even offers to the lazy an admonishment because the fruit of sin is pictured for us. The broken body and the shed blood. He offers for us all encouragement to persevere, knowing that we will share with Him a meal of fellowship for all of eternity. We will. If you're a believer devoted to God's Word and to fellowship and to prayer and the breaking of bread, like we see in the disciples in Acts 2, then we invite you to join us at the table and come be refreshed again on your Christian race. But if you haven't yet come to Christ or haven't been baptized... Or if you're outside of fellowship with a gospel church, then we say, "Go be reconciled first, and then come join us at Christ's table." Let me pray over this time, and then our.